with me. The Gospel according to Mark. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we have one provided for you in the pew back. And please take that and find the Gospel of Mark. And I'll be reading a selection from chapter 14, verses 10 through 11, and then verses 17 through 21. Mark 14, uh, beginning in verse 10, the word of the Lord. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And then verse 17, and when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after the other, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom, the Spirit of, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. The Word of the Lord. In this very sobering passage, Mark takes us to the very last of the hours of the life of Jesus. The time immediately before his betrayal and his arrest and crucifixion. And in this setting, in this setting we all know so well, we meet this notorious man, the most notorious of all men, Judas Iscariot, the man with the infamous name, Judas, and yet one of Christ's own disciples, a man whose name strangely means praise the Lord. He was a disciple. He was from Kirioth, a place in Moab. Therefore, he was known as Judas Iscariot. And since joining the apostolic band, since responding to the call of Jesus, we are told that he had charge of the money box. He was the treasurer of the disciples. And John, the apostle, tells us that there were times when Judas would pilfer what was put into that box that would sustain the life of those men as they followed Jesus. Mark describes how during the last week of our Lord's earthly life, in verse 10 of Mark 14, Judas Iscariot goes off and he meets with the chief priest. And he does so in order, and as unbelievable as this sounds, in order to betray the one he had followed for these three years. And when Jesus was in the midst of being betrayed right there at that supper, right there at the last gathering of the disciples, we read that the Sanhedrin... And the chief priests and those enemies of Jesus were glad, were glad when they heard that Judas, one of the twelve, was going to work with them to bring Jesus down. And so Mark tells us that in his heart, in his mind, Judas all along had been seeking an opportune time to betray Jesus. There's no way around it. This is one of the most disturbing scenes we could imagine. One of Christ's own men seeking to betray him, ultimately to deliver Jesus into the hands of men who wanted him dead. And as we read this passage so long removed from what had happened, we want to know how could Judas do that? What went wrong with this man? How do you make sense of this behavior? 
Judas Iscariot will forever remain a tragic and enigmatic and ironic figure, a man surrounded by great mystery. And this evening we want to think about him. We want to think about the role that Judas played in the crucifixion of the Son of God. And as we think about that man, the son of perdition, strangely enough, we'll learn something about the glory and the grace and the power of the one who hung on the cross for us. There are several things that we find remarkable in a very evil way remarkable about this man Judas and what he did. As we work through the passage this evening, we can see clearly that Judas was a man who was chosen by Jesus. Jesus picked him. You can see this in verse number 10. He's he's listed there as one of the 12. He was one of the disciples of Jesus. Down in verse 18 of the same passage, he is one of you, Jesus says. In verse 20, he's one of the 12. And when you read the lists of the disciples that we find in the gospel record, the name of Judas is on every list. His name was on the roll. He was a disciple. Somewhere along the way, he had heard the Lord Jesus say, Come, and I will make you fishers of men. He was appointed by Jesus to preach the gospel. He was given authority by Jesus to cast out the demons. And Jesus empowered him like he did the other 11 with the supernatural spirit power, the spirit power of God to heal every disease. And they did. He was Apostle Judas. He was Judas, the follower of Jesus, Judas, the disciple of Jesus, and yet he has other names in Scripture. He is called the son of perdition in John 17. He is called a thief in John 12. He is called the devil in John 6. Judas had responded to Jesus with his feet, but he had not responded to Jesus with his heart. Chosen, but not belonging. But the betrayer of our Lord was also a man who was profoundly blessed by his association with Jesus. I bet you've never thought of the blessings that Judas Iscariot knew. But there were blessings beyond measure that this man, this evil son of perdition knew simply by his association with Jesus. Think of what he heard coming from the lips of Jesus. He listened to the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher ever to proclaim the Word of God. He he heard Jesus say, before Abraham was, I am. He heard from the lips of Jesus that incredibly comforting line, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and Judas was there listening to those blessed words. He heard Jesus say, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. But not only what he heard Jesus say, but the blessings in what he saw Jesus do. What all did Judas witness? 
that day on the Sea of Galilee when the gale arose and the waves grew to where they exceeded the height of the boat itself and they bashed the boat and they crashed over the bow and Jesus stood and he said, peace be still. And the waves dropped flat and the wind stopped and Judas was there to see Jesus commanding nature with his voice. He saw Jesus free a man from demons. Twice he saw Jesus feed multitudes, one 5,000 in men and one 4,000 in men. This very night, he watched his Lord remove his outer cloak and put on the clothing of a slave and get down on all fours and wash the feet of the disciples. And Judas Iscariot had his feet washed by the Son of God. The things he saw Jesus do, the blessings this man knew simply by being associated with Jesus and yet he remained lost. He did not believe. He, he would not repent. And then think of how this man that was so blessed and had been personally chosen by Jesus, how this man merchandised the Son of God for earthly gain. He sold Jesus for earthly gain. You know he had made arrangements with the enemies of our Lord to, to hand Jesus over. If he would hand over Jesus, they would hand over the money. Mark 14, 11 says that Judas had promised to give money to the chief priests. And so he began, or rather, the chief priest had sought to give money to Judas, and so he began to figure out how to betray Jesus to get his hands on the money. He is working a trade he is going to trade the beloved Son of God for a few bucks, for 30 pieces of silver. He would sell out the Son of God. He would deliver over to death this man, this man who was the very incarnation of God, this man who was the incarnation of love and the incarnation of holiness and truth, this man who would die for his sins, and he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. And by this time, we're saying, how could this be? It is insane. There is an insanity in what Judas has done. There is an insanity with sin, period. There's a blindness that sin produces. There's, there's, there are consequences to a rebellion against God. There are horrible consequences. The wages of sin are always death. There is utter insanity in rebelling against God. And that insanity that sweeps over us leads us to reject what is truly valuable, what is truly lovely, what is good, what is pure, what is worthy. It leads men to reject and to betray the Son of God. It is insane. Sin can stare Jesus in the face and reject him. Sin can stare Christ in his loving eyes and dismiss him and turn away from him and even arrange his murder. And that's the way sin is. 
There is no rational explanation for what Judas Iscariot did except the evil in his own heart. There is no explanation for what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden except for the blinding, maddening power of sin. Our sin. But then we need to think about this fact. And now the story begins to turn in a direction maybe you weren't expecting, but there's a happy ending. And the happy ending begins by recognizing this about Judas. The betrayer of our Lord, Judas Iscariot, was a man who did freely what God had ordained eternally that he would do. And I'm going to say that again. That's an amazing thing to claim. The man who betrayed our Lord acted freely. And what he freely did had been ordained by God from all eternity. And if you don't believe me, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Don't don't believe some preacher from Hampton Cove. Believe the Son of God. That very evening before the crucifixion, Jesus made a startling announcement. You can see it in verse 18. Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. That's shocking enough. And then in verse 20, he emphatically declares it again. He says that the one who will betray him is one of the twelve who dips with me in the bowl. He is going to show himself to you. You will see his hand next to mine. He is going to move According to our Lord Jesus, and as amazing and as mind-boggling as this sounds, according to our Lord Jesus, the whole series of events leading to his arrest and crucifixion was to occur because Scripture said it would occur. Verse 21, listen to Jesus. The Son of Man is going to go just as it is written of him. And when had it been written of him? Centuries before Christ was born. And you can even go further back. You can think, when did the word of God begin? The word of God began in the eternal mind of God. God's plan was always that he would send his son to atone for our sins and that he would have Judas Iscariot freely betray the son of God. And this is what Jesus is saying. It's an incredible statement that drives us to our knees. John, as he tells this same story in his gospel, makes it very clear as he quotes more of what Jesus said that very night. Jesus said in John 13, 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I've chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And there Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. In John 17, a few chapters later, as Jesus is in the garden praying, and he's praying for you. That's really the Lord's prayer. He's in the garden praying for you in John 17. And he prays this prayer. And listen to these words. He says to the Father, while I was with them, while I was with the disciples, I kept them in your name, the name you've given me. I guarded them 
and not one of them perished but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And then later, after the death and the resurrection of our Savior, after the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost and filling the disciples with the power of God, they began to preach, and Peter began to preach, and he offered the first sermon ever preached in the name of Christ, the first Christian sermon ever preached. And in that sermon, he made this statement. He spoke of Judas, and he said, Jesus was delivered up by this man, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The entire betrayal episode, in fact, was a fulfillment of Psalm 41.9. Listen to these words. The psalmist said, long before our Lord came, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. And that night Jesus quoted that scripture and he looked at Judas. Judas Iscariot was destined to do what he did. And there's the mystery. There's the baffling mystery. What he did was ordained from all eternity. And yet what he did, he did freely of his own volition, from the evil of his own heart. He alone is responsible for his crimes. And even at this tender moment tonight, as we think about our Lord, we're taken deep into the mystery of divine sovereignty. Our small, finite minds are trying to wrestle with that, and we wrestle to no avail. What seems illogical, what seems contradictory, is what the Lord himself said. How could God, on one hand, predestinate not just the life of Jesus, but every life? How could we be agents freely doing what we do because we want to do it? How could we be held responsible? And yet, that's the truth. That's the truth that destroys our pride. And we see it playing out at this moment, this vulnerable moment when our Lord is about to be crucified. Both are true. God is sovereign over all things. And we are made in His image. And we are responsible for what we do. And that leaves us only to stand in awe of Him. Those with eyes of faith will see such a grand truth as this. And they will say with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? We should worship this awesome God. And then finally, as the news gets even better, as we see that there is a purpose behind this madness, we discover in this passage that the betrayer of our Lord was a man whose act of evil was the very mechanism of our salvation. When I think about this, I often ask the question, maybe, maybe you've heard me ask it before. What is the worst, most despicable, most evil, 
most heinous thing to ever happen in the history of the world, what would you say? Some think of the Holocaust. Some think further back to other atrocities. Some think of the headlines or the mass murderers or the the dictators who are responsible for the deaths of millions. What is the worst thing to ever happen on planet Earth? It is the death of the innocent Son of God. It is the worst thing ever perpetrated by human hands and designed by a human mind. It is the greatest crime, the most heinous act, the most despicable act of wickedness. So despicable that human language fails to properly depict it. How could such a thing happen? Why would God not only permit, but why would God design? Why would He ordain that? And we can even take that question and spin it down closer to where you live, to your own heart. Maybe you've been like the psalmist. Maybe you've been like many skeptics. Maybe you've been like many wounded and doubting Christians and you say, Dear God, how could you allow evil to come my way? My health to deteriorate, my child to be ill or taken, my marriage to implode, my loved ones to suffer. And lately we've been reading the headlines and and our hearts are still moved deeply about what has happened in Brussels. And we say, Lord, where are you? Where were you? Do you exist? Are you really, Lord, do you really reign and triumph over all things? Well, Well, this passage that we're reading tonight helps us immeasurably with those troubling questions. And let me show you how it helps us. You see it right before you. What happened as a result of the betrayal of Jesus by this evil man? What happened? Our Lord was arrested. He was taken to a series of trials deep into the night. He was found guilty. He was traded for Barabbas. It was decreed that he be crucified. He was beaten by a Roman soldier to a point near death. And the wooden crossbeam of the cross was strapped across his shredded back and he walked the way of pain, the Via Dolorosa. And then his hands and his feet were nailed with four-inch spikes into those wooden beams. And it was, it was placed in the ground vertically. And there 
And there he hung and died. That's what happened next. And that, my brothers and sisters, is how God saved you. What happened after Judas did his thing is that God saved you. And God saved me. And God brought salvation to all who believe upon the name of the Son of God. Out of all the wickedness in that scene, the scene that makes us uncomfortable, out of the perversity of this, the violence of this, the, the horrific things that Jesus endured prior to his death, all of that triggered by human sin, God brought salvation. He saved the world. The blood of Christ spilled on the cross saved us. It washed our sins away. What Satan was trying to do through the man Judas to destroy Jesus, to stop him, God was doing to save the world. The cross and the resurrection is the proof that God takes the worst that we have, the worst that we are, the worst we can scheme and create in our fallen minds, and he spins it around. And because he is the sovereign God of all, he uses it for the most grand and glorious purpose of all to save you and me. And if he can do that, he can redeem any other pain you have. He can redeem any other evil that comes into your life under his good, sovereign hand because he took the cross and he saved the world. What a Savior. What a king. And this is why there's the triumphant note. Perhaps you're thinking about it even now. I have a feeling when the Apostle Paul wrote this, he, he stood to his feet and maybe he bounced off the ceiling with joy. And he writes these words, For God causes all things to work together for good. All things. For those who love him, for those who've heard the call and become his children. That's what God does. Love grows where the blood falls. He has borne our griefs. He has carried away our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. His beating was our peace. His wounds, our healing. The Lord was pleased to lay on him all our iniquity. Amen. Amen. Our fourth reading of Scripture this evening, as you see, is from John 18:18. 18, 